Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Tali Nate, has a personal connection to Schindler's List. On it is the name of her father and uncle, whom Oskar Schindler saved from a Nazi extermination camp. She is now the director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center in South Africa, and we have a fascinating conversation about how the lessons of the Holocaust are applied and learned in post-apartheid South Africa. Tali was born in Israel and moved to South Africa before the end of apartheid, and she candidly describes the moral compunction she experienced during that era and how teaching Holocaust history to white South Africans became a method of resistance. This episode is part of a series that's being created in partnership with the Salzburg Global Seminar, which is a forum and meeting space that brings together a cross-section of global leaders to take on some of the big global challenges of the day. We kick off discussing her participation in one of the Salzburg sessions before turning to her own family history and contemporary work. This is a great conversation. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact tab. And I would so love for you to become a sustaining sponsor member of the podcast and earn great rewards in the process. So if you have not done so already, please check out the Patreon page for Global Dispatches Podcast. This is a platform where you can make a recurring contribution to the podcast, support the show, and in return, get some fantastic rewards. If you go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the support the show link, you'll get taken to that platform. Or while you're listening to this show on your phone, you can just click the link in iTunes. And now here is Tali Nates. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So uh, I was invited as a fellow. I am uh, the founder and director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center. And the session uh, two years ago was really around issues of Holocaust and genocide, but how countries confront their uh, past, what do we learn from uh, from the past? And it was mainly post-conflict countries. And of course, because I'm coming from South Africa, we were few South Africans that were invited. And uh, we met with many amazing fellows from Cambodia, Rwanda, um, the Balkans, um, and, and many, many more other African countries like Namibia, Botswana, Morocco, Egypt, uh, Senegal, um, fellows from Japan and China. And it was really uh, a wonderful opportunity to be together for about five to six days and look at history and specifically look at it in um the Schloss, in uh, where the Salzburg uh, Global Seminar is held, that of course has uh, a connection to the Second World War, to the Holocaust, to the first owner of of uh, uh, the Schloss, and uh, and talking about those issues of past, of the history. Um, well, what, but what is that history? I, I'm not today. familiar. Uh, the, the Schloss, and you're referring to the the hotel in which the the seminars are are conducted. Yes, so um, it it belonged to uh, Max Reinhardt, that was uh, of course Jewish, uh, Austrian. Uh, the Schloss is very, very close to uh, Salzburg itself, but it's right next to a lake. It's very, very beautiful, um, and uh, Max Reinhardt uh, escaped uh, just before. Uh, 
the Nazis uh, uh, put uh, the, the policy of uh, laws, propaganda, and, and, and then, of course, um, uh, the final solution in, in, in mass killing. And he escaped to the United States where he died and he left the Schloss or his house to the the global seminar. Uh, and the idea was that um, uh, conversations and, and dialogues and learning and, and talking about, um, about our world, our world today, our world in the past, and of course, our world in the future, and how can we uh, make it a better place, perhaps? Uh, that was his vision. And uh, I think the uh, the global sim- uh, seminars are doing a great job uh, doing it. So, so you mentioned that the, the seminar that you participated in took a look at, at Holocaust remembrance, Holocaust education, but how it could be applied to countries as diverse as Cambodia and, and Namibia. Can you maybe just like walk me through like, why is like Holocaust education relevant to say Cambodia, which obviously, you know, experienced its own very unique genocide as of course the Nazi extermination of the Jews was its own sort of unique uh, genocide as well. But, but like what, what are some sort of lessons in remembrance or in education that can be imparted from the Holocaust, uh, the extermination of the Jews to, to say the Cambodian genocide? So um the Holocaust of course it's an ex- is an excellent entry point it wasn't the only entry point that the seminar discussed um if I'll take uh, Rwanda that is uh of course, three and a half hours flight away from where I am sitting now in Johannesburg is an example of a genocide that happened in 1994. Of course, the same month and the same year um, that uh, South Africa went into the process of democracy, the first uh, democratic elections in South Africa. So if I look at Rwanda or Cambodia, as you as you uh, referred, um, the, the thinking is that if you look at the Holocaust, at, uh, at the fact that um, Genocide, in the case study of the Holocaust or Rwanda, is not in- inevitable. Um, you can't stop it. It is um, uh, starting with words. It's starting with uh, propaganda. Um, in the case of Rwanda, it started with uh, um, referring uh, to Tutsi as cockroaches and snakes. Uh, the Jews were referred to as uh, a vermin or, or uh, the enemy of the people. Um, so it's many, many times you have to look at very first signs. And the Holocaust is great to look at that because, uh, of course, um, it's so well documented and we have so much that we can uh, uh, we can go and find and, and rely on when we look at Cambodia or, or Rwanda. Um, it is very good case study to look at choices uh, of individuals. We, we work a lot, uh, and in Salzburg we talked a lot about choices of perpetrators, bystanders, uh, resistors, collaborators, and so on. So if you look at the Holocaust against this very, very well-documented case study, you can take many examples of these different choices, this different human behavior. And then when you look at Rwanda, for example, you can look at some of the same choices. So it's really an entry point. And uh, what we found in the seminar, and uh, indeed we are invited again to a meeting in Salzburg uh, next month, is that the Holocaust is a great starting point. It gives you the background. It gives you the documents. Uh, it gives you the, the um, uh, perhaps the confidence to, to, uh, to look at, those, at that case study and then from there go to other genocides in the 20th century. So can I ask you a question as, as someone who's an expert in Holocaust remembrance and Holocaust education, and, and we'll get into your, your background in a little bit. Um, I, I'm one sort of question that that's always kind of been lingering on my mind. And, and, and you referenced it earlier is, is how do you sort of choose to remember these, these events? And, you know, I've been to the genocide museum in, in Kigali, Rwanda, and I've been to the U S Holocaust mm-hmm. Memorial museum in Washington, DC. And, I guess to me, the, this sort of museum experience of both is so vastly different. Um, and in, in a way, there's like the, the immediacy of the Rwanda genocide seems to, um, inspire a, a, a deeper memory of the profound brutality 
uh, like individual brutality of that genocide. Whereas in in Washington D.C. at the Holocaust Memorial Museum, there's almost like a more of an antiseptic feeling to it. Uh, I'm wondering if if you have that sort of similar experience or or how you might compare these two different museums. And and it's something I've been thinking about a lot is is sort of the, the sort of the experience as a museum goer of of these two acts of remembrance. So thank you for asking me because I founded basically a center or a museum with a core exhibition. And a lot of the questions that you are uh, referring to are uh, uh, in my mind and in my heart for, for years now, uh, eight years since we started this process of creating um, this center in Johannesburg. And um, looking at uh, the, the Gisozi Museum in, in Kigali that you refer to, um, of course, it is very haunting because it is also the resting place. It's the mass graves of uh, about 250,000 Tutsi uh, that were murdered in, in the genocide of in Rwanda that, of course, took, took, took place for about 100 days or three months uh, between April and July 1994. So when you go to that museum, you learn about the genocide, but you see um, the mass graves, you see the names on the walls outside of of people that died. It is only 20 years ago, 22 years ago, um, the, the, the description of the genocide, as you very well put, uh, it's neighbors. It's it's face to face killing with machetes, um, and and you see it when you go to Rwanda. You go to places like Murambi, where uh, perhaps forty thousand uh, were murdered in in schools and churches around the hills, uh, not far from Butari, and you you really come to face to face with uh, with skulls, with bones, with the uh, remains of of families of uh, men, women, and children. So. You cannot be indifferent. You 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 are standing there and you feel part of of that history. Uh, you are shocked. You are uh, you cry. You you really feel uh, very very moved. Um, Washington. That now also it's a it's a, a museum that was opened in 1993. So think about it, 23 years ago, uh, an excellent museum um, that is telling a historical story of the Holocaust that happened more than 70 years ago and thousands of so, miles away. And thousands of miles away. It's not in Germany or it's not in France or or even uh, in one of the other countries. It's it's a country of liberators. It's the country that fought um, um, slightly later <laughs> from the end of forty one, but fought or fought the Nazis, fought the Axis powers. So so it's a little bit of a different angle. It's it, it's coming from. A different side of history. It's done very well. It's teaching us uh, uh, fantastic lessons. Uh, uh, the, the photographs, the, the the family stories, the individual survivor stories are, of course, very touching. And uh, but I think Washington, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and many other museums of the Holocaust around the world are also there to serve as a memorial or to serve as places where you can link to human rights or lessons for humanity or or others. And these are the kind of things that that museums, as they're being established, are thinking. What what are we trying to to tell? What what story? Or what history do we want to connect to the people that are coming to visit us? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would love to learn more about you and how you got into this line of work. Uh, you are South African. You're in, you're in South. I'm reaching you in, in Cape Town. Is that right? Or Johannesburg? No, Johannesburg. Johannesburg. Okay. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, and I, I would love to learn sort of your connection to this, to this uh, part of history. And I take it that your immediate relations were saved by Oscar Schindler. Is that right? Absolutely. My father, my uncle, uh, were on Schindler's list. So, so in a way, uh, Mark, I was born to this history, if you wish. Um, as I grew up, uh, my father did not speak too much. He was 14 years old when when uh, the war started uh, in Poland, and he he had a lot of nightmares. I remember as a child uh, waking up uh, to hear him scream. He had nightmares. Uh, part of uh, what he had to do, uh, he was in four different concentration camps, and what 
part of what he had to do was to to um, open up mass graves and, and, and bury and, and burn um, uh, bodies in those mass graves. And he probably was about 17 years old at that at that stage. So uh, he did have nightmares. But I grew up with uh, with an interesting story because when the rest of the world did not know the story of uh, Oskar Schindler, I knew the story of Oskar Schindler because my father used to meet him every year. I was born in Israel. My Both my parents are from Poland, but they, after the war, um, immigrated to, to Israel in the 50s, and I was born there. I moved. I, I lived most of my life in South Africa, but I was born um, in Israel, and Oskar Schindler used to come to Israel every year to meet the people that he saved. Um, of course, he saved more than a thousand men, women, and children. And of those one thousand, were my father and my uncle. So how? And my how, how, my how did that? How did that rescue happen? How did that saving happen? Like what? What was so, the story? So the story um, is just to to give a little bit of a of a background or a context uh, to the story. My father Moses Turner um, was born in, in you know in in a small town in the south uh, west of Poland. It's called Novitag, and as I said, he was in different camps. Uh, my um, grandmother, my two aunts, his two sisters, were taken from that town in 1942, in August 1942, to one of the killing centers called Belgets in the east of Poland, and they were murdered there. Uh, he was in different concentration camp. His brother, my uncle Henrik, was also taken to different concentration camps. And at one stage in 1943, they reunited in a in the camp of Plashov, that is right next to Krakow, where Oskar Schindler was operating. So Oskar Schindler, in a way, um, he was there from very early, from 1939. He uh, he started as a perpetrator. He took uh, a factory that uh, belonged to Jews. He did not pay for it. He had slave laborers, 400 of them. He used them, did not pay for their services. Um, And uh, he slowly changed, uh, went through a bystanding stage where he witnessed what was going on and made the decision to start acting as a, um, you know, upstander perhaps or or someone that uh, uh, rescues. And uh, uh, my father and my uncle in Plashov, met him. He used to take all the the 400 prisoners to work in his factory in Krakow. In 1944, it was clear uh, that uh, all prisoners from Plashov are going to be sent to Auschwitz and Plashov was uh, going to be closed. And at that stage, Schindler made a very interesting choice. Instead of saying, I'm going to just save the 400 that uh, I had in my factory, the 400 that I know, he decided to increase the list to more than 1,000. And um, my father and my uncle were barrack builders in Plashov. They used to build barracks, fix barracks for prisoners. Uh, and Schindler simply needed um, to explain why he wants these men, women and children, the extra 600, and put them on the list, uh, and I have a copy of that list, as barrack builders. Uh, they were all taken uh, in 1944 by him, um, Via Grossrosen, the men were sent to Grossrosen concentration camp for about three weeks and then to the camp of Brunlitz in Sudetenland. Uh, the women went through uh, Auschwitz and went to Brunlitz uh, in Sudetenland. Uh, and uh, they were with Oskar Schindler for just under a year. Uh, and he basically protected them. It was an ammunition factory, but they did not create any new ammunition. He sort of... Uh, wanted to, uh, um, to, you know, his statement was in this factory, uh, no bullet will come out of this factory. And he went to the black market and, and bought bullets. So all those stories that I grew up on, you know, that my uncle and my father used to to tell me um, were known to me much before the film that came mm-hmm. out, uh, of course, in 1993. Um, and I remember my father and my mother and my uncle going to meet uh, Oskar Schindler. He used to come to Israel uh, to, to meet his survivors, as he called them. And um, they used to, I was a little girl, and they used to go in and meet him. 
And uh, my father is not alive anymore, but my mom, that is 91, says until this day that uh, it was absolutely unbelievable. And she claims that he was a very good-looking man. <laughs> so that is, her, that is her addition to the historical books. <laughs> Do you have memories of meeting him personally? No, sadly, I was too little and mm -hmm. they didn't take me. Uh, I'm really sad about it. Uh, but I do have one piece of, uh, of artifact that is interesting. Um, Schindler basically lost all his money. He, he gave all his uh, money that some of it he stole, of course, from his being a perpetrator, as I described before. Um, but he lost all his, all, all his fortune in saving the Jews. And uh, after the war, the Jews collected the money, those that he saved, uh, the 1,000 collected donations to, uh, to give to him. He believed that he would be a great uh, farmer. So he decided to go to Argentina and they gave him money to, to go to Argentina. Failed in anything else that he did. Went back to Germany and was an insurance salesman. But um, I still have the receipts of the donations that my father that was uh, really a man without much education that worked in a garage, you know, and uh, still collected whatever money and savings he had to give to the man that uh, saved him. So this is a real uh, huge story that I grew up with and, and, and made a huge influence on my life. Uh, and, and at what point did you move from Israel to South Africa? So I, I moved um, when I was in my early 20s. Uh, I met a lovely young South African boy that uh, came uh, to visit Israel. We fell in love. Uh, the rest is history. I came to, to live in South Africa uh, more than 30 years ago. And uh, I have two children here. Mm -hmm. So during, uh, so during uh, apartheid, uh, you, 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 but you grew up mostly in, in Israel? I so I grew up partially in Israel, but I was also in South Africa during the last years of apartheid. And I can uh, share with you the, the 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 terrible the terrible years, the memory of the terrible years, and of course the 1994 election and um, and, and witnessing and, and and standing in those queues to vote. Um, I would love to to tell you a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, so I, I I'd love to, to to learn about that. So so you basically though grew up in Israel. Um, what year? Years were you were you in Israel? What year did you leave Israel? So I left Israel in the late eighties. Mm -hmm. so, um, so you were there for like the seventy three uh, yes, war. Yes, yes. How so old I were you when there, when that happened? I was I was uh, so I was um, what eleven or so or or no no I was a bit older. Sorry, I'm trying to calculate about thirteen or fourteen. So old enough um, to understand the consequence yes, and the gravity definitely. of of your country being at war. Absolutely. So I, I grew up, you know, it was very much the realities in the 70s and, and even the 80s when I was uh, when I was there that, you know, you, you grow up with those messages of war, with messages of uh, of um, of danger on the one hand. And then, of course, within the years, also with other messages of, of Israel as a, a country of, of many and how do you live with with all and, and some of the dilemmas and, and, and the difficult choices uh, that Israel went through. So as a teenager, you know, I went through quite a lot of those, uh, those chapters, uh, um, you know, growing up. Um, and, and when I came to, to South Africa, um, again, it was enormous historical um, uh, you know chapters that mm -hmm. were happening from from the end of apartheid to to uh, uh, the resistance to apartheid that was going on around around here I was uh, a student um, at the university and I also was teaching I was lecturing at the university in the last years of, of apartheid and uh, in the beginning of democracy and uh, just witnessing um, the changes witnessing uh, um, some of the um, some of the laws in the in the last years of, of apartheid that were very remin uh, very similar in a way uh, parallel to to some of the Nazi laws you know it was quite quite a period to to um, to be here uh, and witness it uh, for myself and then of course the uh, the election and Nelson Mandela and, well, what, and, and, let's go back so so what what were you teaching at, at the time. 
Were you a history? So Yes, a history. I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. I, I studied history, um, mainly modern history. I'm interested in Holocaust history and uh, history of genocide. Uh, my uh, main interest is in Rwanda mm-hmm. and the Holocaust. Uh, but also I studied about Russia, about communist Russia, and, and widely about Germany and other modern history so- um, Chapters. I guess I've always been been curious um, about sort of the role of of like white liberals in South Africa during this time of of transition. You don't really hear too much about it, um, and and I guess like was there actually like an active white sort of uh, movement that sided with with the anti-apartheid leaders with Mandela, and and like Absolutely. how like how robust was it though? No, absolutely. I, I think that here in South Africa, we we know about it. I realize that the world outside uh, know less about it. Uh, we have many museums. We teach about it in the curriculum, uh, the, the le- learning about the liberation struggle, about the white liberals, as you you um, indicated in, in your question, that we're very involved. Uh, People like uh, Joe Slovo, Ruth First, uh, Dennis Goldberg, uh, people like uh, uh, Albie Sachs, uh, that perhaps many more know of, uh, and, and many, many others that were involved, student movements uh, in, at Wits University, at UCT, at University of Cape Town, at many other universities, so white students. Of course, these were white-only universities for many, many years. Um, so many students that were involved in, in those struggles. And then in politics, uh, you have uh, different people that played different roles. Uh, Helen Sussman is one that we we speak about uh, quite often. And uh, and many others that were involved either in the Communist Party or other liberal parties or in anti-apartheid movements like like the women movement that was the Black Sash movement, for example, that was mainly white women, many of them young or old that were standing up against against apartheid and and many more uh, against their passbooks and so on. And what was your, your involvement at the time? So, as a historian, it was really very interesting. It was the last years of apartheid. And as a historian and a lecturer, I could teach, for example, about it was not it was not possible to openly teach about uh, apartheid, but it was very possible. No one would stop me to teach about the Holocaust, but then to make parallels to apartheid, for example. And that was uh, very doable. And uh, made a, a very big impact. So in the last years, I would say it was about probably six years or five years. It was just the last years until 1994. Uh, I could do just that, teach about different uh, period, different continent, different history, but then all the time be able to make parallels to our reality in what we are going through uh, in South Africa. Like what would have happened if, if you just started making the parallels sort of more, um, less, less perhaps uh, uh, oblique and, and sort of spoke directly to the connections between apartheid and, and the Holocaust? Would you have been fired from your position? I mean, what were the power could, structures that repressive? Yeah. Uh, you could, you could be. There were consequences. I, it didn't stop me because I did, I did lecture. But, um, but there were consequences. Uh, you can be, you could be in the earlier years. I, I don't think that in those years, in the 1991, because things were starting to change. Of course, Mandela was out of prison. The ANC was unbanned. Uh, you know, the, the the conversations were happening. Codessa was happening. So everything was already happening. So I don't think that um, it would be as bad as that. But uh, the fact was that um, in the earlier years, you did have spies. And uh, of course, people were betrayed and, and, and arrested and uh, spent time in, in prison. And many people that I work with, that I uh, admire, that I uh, uh, that I know were in prison uh, for shorter periods or longer periods. Uh, as I said, I came just uh, a little bit 
in the later stage, and uh, uh, it wasn't as repressive as it was in the in the early stages. So, at what point did you realize that the system was was going to actually come crashing down? Was there ever a moment? Uh, where it all sort of crystallized for you that that apartheid was was poised to fall. I think that as I you know I got married and I moved in uh, and I moved to the country and it was the late eighties. Uh, the minute F W de Klerk came in and 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 started to to make uh, different you know different uh, noises if you wish uh, and, and and really start uh, specifically nineteen ninety when when uh, Mandela was released. It was very very clear that we are going towards massive massive change. Um, but there were fears. I remember many people being very, very afraid that there will be a civil war or there will be mass killing and mass violence. Uh, will it be peaceful? People were not sure where, where it's going to, to be. I remember uh, people, not us, but other people uh, uh, buying food and keeping food and, and, uh, and, and, and hoping that the, the country will not uh, collapse into a bloody civil war. Of course, we know 22 years later that uh, a transition was very, uh, relatively very, very peaceful, very respectful and uh, quite miraculous. Um, and, and yeah. Did you ever, I guess, during your, your early years in South Africa, sort of have any moral qualms or second guessing of your decision to move uh, to, you know, a country that, you know, has the apartheid structure and, you know, in your own way, um, you know, you know, be a, you know, live there and, and perhaps um, in an unintentionally sort of contribute to sort of the, the white power structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, I'm telling you something that I didn't think about for years, but I had a suitcase packed because I really did not want to be there. You know, I had a suitcase packed and tried to convince uh, the family to, to move out. My husband was involved. He was um, part, you know, I mentioned Helen Sussman and he was active as a youngster there and uh, trying to convince people to vote in a referendum to uh, for changes in South Africa. And he was quite involved and he wasn't interested in, in leaving the country. Um, so for me, as a second generation or a daughter of Holocaust survivors, no doubt I can tell you that it was very, very hard to be here. Um, and when I was teaching, it was easier because I could speak about apartheid. I could speak against apartheid. I could actually teach about it. And um, uh, as a teacher, I had the power to at least use words and and uh, teaching and academia to to speak against the apartheid uh, apartheid system and apartheid regime. But um, nevertheless. You know, uh, it was not easy. But one other point that perhaps uh, is is something that I remember myself thinking is that it was quite um, quite a challenge and a feeling of uh, of um, sort of a mission. Maybe it's a big word, but a mission to be there in those years and feel that you are part of the changing system. Perhaps that you can contribute. Somewhat, even if it's very, very small, in a small way, to uh, changing um, uh, unjust system, and uh, and I remember that I was I was very young, but I remember those thoughts thoughts of wow, I'm living history, and I can do at least or try doing. Of course, not knowing what will be the end because I didn't have hindsight. I didn't know it will be 1994. It could have been 10 years later. But the feeling of you can do something. Um, so uh, after uh, apartheid fell, after Mandela won uh, elections, um, how did sort of the educational system transform itself? Because I, I know that you uh, were very involved in in promoting Holocaust education in the South African you know curriculum. Um, what were some of the sort of early changes in in sort of the the entire sort of pedagogical structure of you know, the South African sort of educational system? So think about it. Uh, a country that was a racial state, uh, that was divided into races, uh, and uh, each 
uh, had its own education system. So the whites uh, had the best education system. Uh, then the you know the Indian population had slightly less. And, and then the colored uh, population, and and then finally, you know, the the least uh, resources and uh, the the least invested system was, of course, for the majority of the people uh, during apartheid. So as things started to change, the the um, challenge was huge. Uh, there was a. Uh, new curriculums to write. They were training for teachers. You had to restructure the whole uh, the whole school system in the country. Um, so, so I was not involved at that stage at all. I was still uh, lecturing at the university for a few years. Uh, but witnessing that and witnessing the changes uh, in the curriculum, for example, a curriculum that was a racist curriculum had to, um, to change completely. Uh, resources for schools had to change completely. Uh, literacy, uh, teaching in English and not in Afrikaans, teaching in home languages. Uh, of course, the country adopted a new national anthem. The country adopted 11 official languages. The country uh, changed completely. It's not only the education system. Everything was changing. It's the the first five years of Mandela were, were uh, years of change, immense change in all avenues. And then, of course, continuing with the years of, of, of Tabo Mbeki and, uh, and, and, and to today. Um, as a historian in the university, I, I felt frustrated that I'm not part, I'm not an activist, you know, I'm not, I'm not part of the change. And I resigned from the university and uh, in the late 90s actually joined um, NGOs, different NGOs. I was uh, in, in a smaller NGO uh, called the Foundation for Tolerance Education, uh, not the greatest no name, but in the, in the late 1990s, forgive me, you know, that was uh, that's probably about as far as you could go yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> so um we were taking historical examples such as the holocaust rwanda immediately after the rwanda genocide we were the first ones to really work even with survivors in 98 99 um and uh, and teaching apartheid we were one of the first ngos that were actually teaching about apartheid because because it was difficult the, the curriculum didn't teach about apartheid how do you teach about apartheid you don't have uh, yet the resources the textbooks and so on so uh, i joined that ngo and later on other ngos that um, i believe very much in work of transformation and reconciliation um, you know, following the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, we are celebrating 20 years this year for the start of the TRC. So, so very much working in that. Now, I, I did not contribute really to the curriculum decision of inclu the inclusion of the Holocaust in the curriculum. Uh, so I do correct you on that. Mm -hmm. However, I uh, always believed that um, teaching about other countries other mass atrocities in other countries. May it be the Holocaust or Rwanda or, I don't know, Australia, Cambodia, uh, whatever other context that we, we look at, if it is genocide, if it is human rights issues, like in Australia, the, the, um, the you know, uh, eugenics, uh, the, the children that disappeared and so mm -hmm. on, and, and others, uh, South Africa can learn from it. Uh, many times, it is very hard for us to look at our own history. It's very painful. It's very hard. It's very fresh. Uh, the history of apartheid, the history of racism in South Africa, is very much looked through the prism of white and black. That was the reality. But when you look at the history of the Holocaust, white people killed white people. Uh, you know, uh, if you want. I mean, Although it's fair to say that the, that the sort of Germans probably didn't consider, you know, Jews to be white people. Um, yeah. You, you know, and, and I'm actually wondering, so in, in sort of the hierarchy of South Africa's racial structure, like where did Jews fit? I mean, were they considered white? Did Jews speak Afrikaans? What was the, the sort of general sort of status of, of Jews in South Africa, both during uh, apartheid and, and during the transitional period that you just described? 
So, so perhaps if you allow me, let me just mm-hmm. give you a little bit of a background before apartheid, because I think it's quite important. Sure. Uh, in the height of the Jewish population, by the way, there were just under 120,000 Jews here, and that was in 1980. So Jews started to come to South Africa in the late 19th century, 1880, and immigrated mainly from Lithuania and Latvia. Interestingly enough, uh, the majority of the Jews of South Africa are from Lithuania and Latvia. And uh, that was stopped by by the government of the time in 1930. Uh, There was a Quota Act that stopped uh, immigration from Lithuania and Latvia and Eastern Europe. So Jews could not come in anymore from there. There was a loophole um, that Jews from Germany could come. And I, I want to say that because it's important. So mm-hmm. during the Hitler years, the 33, when Hitler came to power, uh, about 3,000 Jews from Germany arrived to South Africa. And that loophole was closed in 1937 by the Afrikaner government uh, that did not want Jewish immigration. Mm-hmm. And that was stopped. Uh, in a a law called the Aliens Act, and basically Jewish immigration did not happen. During the war years, uh, 39 to 45, about 400 Jews came in, 400, that's Mm -hmm. it. And, And then after the war, some more came, but Jewish immigration was not um, not a good, it, it was not considered a good thing by the Afrikaner government. Mm-hmm. They were anti-Semitic. Uh, many Afrikan, Afrikaners um, supported Hitler and supported racist laws. And when apartheid started in South Africa in 1948 with the national government of uh, D.F. Malan, um, Jews were not equal and were not uh, regarded as, as, as equal to, to whites, and many laws were against Jews. However, that changed quite quickly, simply because they needed the numbers. And uh, Jews were then uh, accepted as whites, but of course discrimination continued on in different ways, mm-hmm. I don't country country clubs that will not accept Jews, and you know societies and the National Party did not accept Jews, and and so on and so forth. Uh, during the apartheid years, um, some Jews uh, um, collaborated with the apartheid regime, and and many Jews uh, didn't, and many, the majority, were bystanders. To mm-hmm. tell you the truth, just did not act. And uh, and um, then the transition, I think Jews were very much involved, like any av- other population group, in uh, in the transition, and are still very involved in um, in in the many aspects of of the country, uh, including politics. And, uh, the head of the opposition party uh, was of Jewish descent uh, in the past. Richard Goldstone, from the UN perspective, he's, you know, a a shining, you know, international human rights jurist and and legal scholar and was the head of the the war crimes tribunal for a long time as as Jewish and, and South African. Absolutely. And and many others like Albie Sachs and, mm. and, and like uh, Arthur Cheskelson, um, the late uh, Arthur Cheskelson that was uh, at the Constitutional Court of South Africa uh, and, and so on. So, so, so you do have still many, many Jewish voices that are involved in the country. Uh, so at what point did you start the, the uh, Johannesburg uh, Holocaust Center? So the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center uh, started with with sort of a, an idea that um, uh, the Holocaust and genocide were now part of the curriculum. Kada Asmal, that was the education minister, uh, drove the, the inclusion of the Holocaust into the curriculum in 2007. We are the only African countries that uh, the Holocaust is compulsory in the curriculum as of 2007 in two grades, uh, 15 years old and 17 years old, grade nine and grade 11, study about it. And it is part of human rights curriculum. So the rationale of the Department of Education is very simple and actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, there was no culture of human rights before the Second World War. Uh, there was no word genocide, of course. Uh, the word was only invented or coined in 1944 by Raphael Lemkin. And uh, there was no law, there was no international law about genocide. Uh, and only in the United, when after the Second World War and the Holocaust and the establishment of the United Nations, 
the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the uh, Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide were passed in 1948. Uh, but 1948 is also the year that apartheid started in South Africa. And actually, as South Africa did not sign both Uh, the, the genocide law or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was signed by South Africa only in 1998. Mm. So it makes sense in a way to study about the Holocaust and the Second World War, the establishment of the UN, all the declarations, and then go into uh, apartheid, but then also touch Rwanda because, again, the parallel in April 1994 and the parallel in, of governments uh, to governments in Africa that are choosing very, very different uh, uh, paths for, for, for the countries is, is very clear. Um, so the curriculum came in in 2007, and I was involved in many NGOs, and there was the Cape Town Holocaust Center that was already operational in Cape Town. Beautiful, beautiful Cape Town. It started by a wonderful woman and a uh, one of my uh, models, really, and mentors, an amazing, amazing woman by the name of Myra Osren that decided that as South Africa is tran the transition into democracy uh, in 94, Um, she would like to to use uh, the Holocaust as as an example of, uh, of 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 a case study where lessons for humanity can can be learned. And she started the uh, Holocaust Center in Cape Town in 1999. Uh, but the minute in 2007 the Holocaust became part of the curriculum and a compulsory part. You had 600,000 teachers that had to be trained. You had thousands, hundreds. And, or millions of kids, hundreds of thousands of, of, of learners, uh, students that had to study about it. And um, she spoke to, to me, uh, she spoke to others about why isn't the center in Johannesburg, Johannesburg, of course, the largest city, one of the, the, the most important cities in, in all of Africa. Uh, why isn't the center? And uh, I was working in another NGO um, And um, she spoke to me and, and I, I thought about it. I resigned from the NGO <laughs> and um, I decided to, to dream big and to try to do something different in Johannesburg. Uh, our center is called uh, the Holocaust and Genocide Center. And we actually partner with the city of Johannesburg and we built, we just completed the largest center in Africa that is not a museum. It is a center that looks at um, genocide, starting with the Herero and Nama genocide in Namibia in 1904. And ends with uh, Rwanda in the twin, in, you know, and then and then Yugoslavia that we look at in uh, in the, the late 1990s, and uh, look at further than that uh, the two case studies of the Holocaust and the Rwanda genocide in in great detail. But uh, further than that, looks at issues of human rights in South Africa, such as xenophobia, homophobia, racism. And, and others. So what's what's next for you? And I'm actually surprised you didn't include the, the Darfur uh, genocide in that. Yes. So that's the 21st century. Okay. Uh, very well, very well asked. And indeed, we already had uh, two exhibitions about Darfur, mm. and uh, we will do it, do more about Darfur and, and Darfur, and we are doing more about um, other other case studies, warning warnings about. We just ended a fantastic um, exhibition in um, in partnership with the United Nations called uh, Children's of War, Broken Childhood. And this is looking at child soldiers, mainly in Africa, but not only in Africa, and at vulnerable children. Children is, is a, a, you know, sex, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, slaves, if you, if you wish, and so on. So we look at it wider than that. Next year, we're going to work with Amnesty International and look at, uh, at uh, discrimination of um, of uh, of albinism, you know, mm -hmm. people that are born albino and uh, with albinism and are 
terribly, terribly discriminated in, in South Africa and in Africa at large. And in the end of this year, we are opening an exhibition called In Whom Can I Still Trust? And that looks at uh, homosexuals in Nazi Germany and then the treatment of, uh, of LGBT in South Africa and Africa. So what is happening today with uh, homophobia? Uh, in South Africa, we have huge issues of corrective rape. Uh, that is uh, uh, very worrying, uh, rape of, of, of lesbian women, um, to try to correct them. It's a horrific term uh, termed by, uh, by the media. And we're trying to, to uh, basically educate and uh, try and change that. So we're doing many, many things that uh, are not specifically genocide connected, but are wider and, and, and broader around issues of prejudice, uh, discrimination, stereotypes, racism, and so on. Well, it, it sounds like you have a very uh, ambitious agenda. Uh, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories and, and for your work. I appreciate uh, speaking with me. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Tali and the people at Salzburg for helping to put this together. And if you've not already done so, do check out the Patreon page. You can get there either by clicking the link in the description field of your iTunes app, or if you're listening to this on the Global Dispatches podcast app, just click the link in the description field of the episode there, or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the support the show. The point is, go to the page and support the show. I, I do need your support, and you can earn rewards in the process. You can get a complimentary access to my Don's Digest Global News Clip Service, which is a morning news roundup of the most important global affairs, humanitarian, human rights news of the day, as picked by me and, and my partner, Tom Murphy. You can also get free access to a sneak preview of the shows that are upcoming. So if you'd like, you can uh, help steer the conversation by asking me to, to pose a question or raise an issue with one of my guests. Um, finally, if enough of you subscribe, I'll do a special podcast episode for your ears only. And right now I'm, I'm sort of thinking that a kind of a fun series to do would to look at kind of big historic moments in foreign policy and revisit them and describe them kind of earth changing moments in how the world is organized and maybe I'll, I'll talk to a historian and we can go over what that moment was why it was so significant and what impacts it has on the world today so if, to that end, if you have any suggestions of, of those kinds of ideas or issues or historical events that you want to learn more about, hit me up and, and I will pursue that idea. All right. I'll see you later. Bye.